The healing began with Jesus spitting. He spit on the ground, he made clay, and put it on the blind man's eyes, and says, go wash in a random pool across town. The controversy began with Jesus' disciples. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? It begs the question, why so much suffering? In every time and place, people suffer. The world is ripped by headlines today. It is in every time, but now we have California wildfires, these hellish infernos that are menacing towns and threatening lives. 7.2 Haiti earthquake demolished an already shaky system. Death toll over 2,100 souls. 10,000 injured. 500,000 need help. 1.2 million affected. Citizens angry and despairing. Rescuers overwhelmed. We've got COVID fears. We've got vaccine and mask mandate battles. Everyone posing as an expert. We've got family blow-ups. We've got rage, resentment, unforgiven trespasses. We've got physical pain, emotional anger, relational scars. We've got anarchy in the USA. Law enforcement officers shot while doing their job. A once strong republic, a mere shell of its former self. We have ignorant speculations and rampant lies unchecked on that runaway train that is social and mainstream media. We've got truth laced with poisonous lies. And there are always wars and rumors of wars. Everywhere the depraved dwell. We've got Israel and her enemies always, often confusing the unfaithful and easy status of God's covenant people. And we've got Afghanistan. Stomach churning. The atrocities committed by a, a rusty nail barbarian horde pretending to be iron-fisted kings. You got the terrorist Taliban going door-to-door killing people who helped the U.S. forces, making murder lists, brutalizing women and children, 10 to 15,000 Americans still trapped in country, hoping to get out. And it is in times like this that we must once again ask the painful question, why so much suffering? John 9 tells us that suffering, the thing you don't want, is the thing that God gives to set your eyes upon him. That God gives suffering, the unwanted menace, so that you would set your eyes upon him. Suffering is a vehicle for God's work in spite of man's sin and for God's glory. This is the answer you need today. This is the answer you need every day as you groan along with creation awaiting God's ultimate glory. Now over the next three Sundays, before we start 1 Thessalonians on the 12th of September, we're going to look at sinners in the hands of a sovereign God. And every sermon will ask a question in light of God's sovereignty, show why it's so important, and what our response should be. So today in John 9, why so much suffering? Next week, Acts 16, with all the suffering going on in the world, why bother with something as seemingly ridiculously optional as baptism? And then the next week, 
Matthew chapter 5 and 18, with all the problems, why repent and reconcile with brothers and sisters in Christ? Why the need for healthy relationships in the church with so many other issues going on? We're in John 9 today, and John's gospel reveals Jesus' identity as God very clearly. His I am statements just clearly identify him. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine, this unmistakable identity of Jesus. John contains seven signs that show the divinity of the word made flesh. He turns water into wine, heals a rich man's son, heals a lame man, feeds the multitude, walks on water. Here today, he heals a man born blind, and he also raises Lazarus. Those seven signs are coupled with seven discourses on the new birth, the water of life, the Son of God, the bread of life, the life-giving Spirit, the light of the world. In John 8, the light of the world. And this narrative in John 9 is an illustration of Jesus being the light of the world. And then the discourse on the Good Shepherd. And all of it is written for one purpose, one purpose. John chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 9 tells us God wants to display his works through unwanted suffering to set your eyes on him if you would see it. This narrative shows us a physical healing and a testing miracle of the Son of God. But also we see a very painful unbelief. And then it ends with spiritual transformation as well as condemnation. And first we see this healing. It's, it's, it starts this way. He's, he's passing by a man born blind. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. And you see, a physical healing ensue. And the point is, Jesus restores sight. The Messiah restores sight. Those disciples asking this question, they think God must be paying someone back. He must have sinned because of his sin, because of his parents' sin. And they, like, they presumed, like many in that day, that sin was the cause of of every suffering, and they could pinpoint it to specific things that you did wrong. Jesus answers, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus is saying no to the judgmental attitude that says suffering is due to specific sins. Warren Wearsby put it this way, to blame a specific disability on a specific sin committed by someone is beyond anyone's ability or authority. Only God knows why babies are born with handicaps. Only God can turn those handicaps into something that will bring good to the people and glory to his name. Now Jesus is not denying that there is a connection between sin and suffering. Suffering came into the world because of sin. But he destroys the idea that specific acts are the direct cause. God's sovereignty and eternal decrees are the driver. You think of Job. 
The example of Job. Or you think of the example of Moses in Exodus 4. He's saying, I don't think I'm up for the task you want me to do, God. And the Lord says to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It's for his purpose. The example of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God gave to me, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He said to the Galatians, because of a bodily ailment, I first preached the gospel to you. In Jesus' answer, he goes on. I'm in verse 4, if you're, if you're following along with the narrative. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And he is speaking of the, the looming cross. Jesus had work to do. God's works are what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost. To restore, to save. And so he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the eternal answer to your sinful blindness, to your sin-blindedness. Always Jesus. And and the Gospel of John has made this clear. From the very beginning, John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 3.19, the judgment is this. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 12, 46, I have come, Jesus says, as the light of the world, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. It fits with 2 Corinthians 4 that tells us that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. You turn to Jesus, you see. And so having said these things, Jesus spits on the ground. How graphic. I mean, he lit- I've been in countries where it's illegal to spit on the ground. He spits on the ground, and he makes mud with his saliva. This is what he's doing. He's making this, these little mud cakes, and he puts it on the guy's eyes. Can you- he gives him a mud mask on his eyes. This blind man, he makes mud from his spit and the dirt and puts it on his eyes. What a sight. Well, this guy couldn't see it. But this was the recipe that God was using to get him to go across town to the pool and wash. He says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That that word Siloam means sent in Hebrew. Siloam is is a neighborhood south of Jerusalem's old city. The water from the pool came from what was known as Hezekiah's tunnel, from the spring of the Gihon in, in the Kidron Valley, and the water, and this is why it's important, the water for the water-pouring ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles was drawn from this pool. It was first celebrated in Hezekiah's time. And what it was signifying, the Feast of the Tabernacles, was thanksgiving for God's deliverance of his people. Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles and spoke these words on the last and most important day, on the greatest day of the feast, John 7, 37 and 38, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, streams of living water shall flow from within him. 
And he makes this invite based on the fact that he is the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. He is the one providing the living water that gives eternal life. And the very next morning, the torches would have still been burning. Jesus said this, it's recorded in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is telling them, your life rests on the redemption that I will purchase at the cross and the forgiveness of sins that I give. You will have thanksgiving for deliverance. Now, it seems silly. Now, anyone hearing this story would go, that this is silly. He spits on the ground. He makes mud, puts a little mud cake together, puts it on the guy's eyes, tells him to go across town. The blind guy is supposed to go across town and go to a seemingly random pool. It's similar to what was said in 2 Kings 5 when Naaman was healed of leprosy. And when he was told, here's how you be healed. Go to the Jordan River and, and dip in it seven times. He's like, pridefully saying, you know what? I've got better rivers where I'm from. Why would I go 100 plus miles out of my way to do something I could do at home? And someone comes up to him and says, I'd do that if I were you. I'd go to the Jordan River if I were you. And he did, and he gets healed. So this blind man presumably is led across town. And he's led across town. What a, what a spectacle. The guy with mud cakes on his eyes. This dirty-eyed beggar man obeys. He, he went, he washed, and he came back seeing. It happened. As he would say later, never in the history of the world is, has there been a case where someone heals someone who's been born blind and gives them her sight. The neighbors are, are dumbfounded. They're confused. And they, they saw him before as a beggar. That was the only job he could get. He was going to be relegated to being a beggar sitting on the side of the road at the mercy of anyone who would give him anything. Looked down upon even because, well, he must have sinned for this to happen. And here he comes back, and he can see. People are asking, isn't this the one that used to sit and beg? Now, it's understandably confusing. Every one of us would have done the same thing. We all would have been like, wait a minute, wait a minute, and given the same kind of answers. Uh, some would say, well, I think it's him. And others are like, no, 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 he just looks like him. Now look, we've been living with masks for what, a year and a half or so, and you, you see someone walking up to you, and you're like, I think I know you. It's understandably confusing here. Wait a minute, this, this guy was sitting there all the time, and he was blind, but he, now he's walking around and he can see. So they ask him, and some of them had evil intent by, by what comes next. Some of them had evil intent. How were your eyes opened? He says, well, Jesus made mud and put it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and received my sight. 
He just tells the story. He's going to tell this story his whole life. For the rest of his life on earth, he'd be telling this story. Here they, they force him to tell it like four times. They just can't grasp. And they ask, where is he? So now some are getting angry. Where is he? They said, I don't know. He doesn't know. The guy doesn't know where Jesus is. And this is how this physical healing comes about. And what you see next is this painful unbelief. Tragic unbelief. Sinners don't believe it. You would think that people would be so happy that someone's suffering is ended, but not always. Sometimes there are nefarious motives involved. They're not so excited that someone actually got a big blessing. So they bring the man to the Pharisees. Now you know what's coming up. Now it's ramping up. They bring him to the Pharisees. They don't care about the miracle. They cared about the fact that Jesus did something on the Sabbath that he wasn't supposed to do. So they bring the man to the Pharisees. If you're following along, we're around verses 13 to 15. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. So they ask again, how did you receive your sight? And he says, well, he, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. This is a, a torturous interrogation. They want to accuse Jesus of breaking their rules. But I love the repetition. I love the fact that over and over again, they're hearing, Jesus did this. Here's what he did. He made mud, put it on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. His story is not changing. Some of the Pharisees say, Well, then Jesus isn't from God. No way. He can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Well, know-it-alls. Others said, how can this man be a sinner and do these kind of things? So they're divided. Back and forth. It's so different than Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night, John 3. said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. He wanted to believe. He needed to believe. But again, they say to the man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And I can almost hear the sarcasm. And he says, and I think he makes a great guess here. He's a prophet. Good guess. You're getting warmer. And it says in verse 18, the Jews did not believe. They didn't believe that this was the guy that had been born blind. They take this story of some of the neighbors. Looks like him. He looks like him. Maybe he looks like a twin, you know. But it's not him. They did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They're not buying it. They're not believing the story. So what do they do? They go get his parents. They go to the home office. Oh, his parents will know. They say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? They're interrogating the parents now. And here's what the parents say. Oh, we know it's our son. Maybe they knew a certain scar he had or something. I don't know, you know. We know it's our son who was born blind. And then they tell a big old fat lie. And they say, you know, how he now sees, we don't know. And who did it? No idea. Why don't you ask him? He's of age. He can answer for himself. And verse 22 tells us why they did it. Because the Jews had already said, if anyone confesses Jesus as the Christ, they are out of the synagogue. And this doesn't mean you're going to get thrown out and you can come back, you know, the next day if you behave better. It means you are out, gone, out of the the community of Israel. You don't even have a country anymore. 
That's what that means. And so they are afraid, and they, they knew, but they, he, they just said, well, he's of age, ask him. So then they bring him back, and they ask him again, they force the guy who'd been born blind, they demand him, and they say this, give glory to God, we know this man's a sinner. They don't care that he can now see. It's interesting, Joshua 7, Joshua said to Achan, who had sinned grievously, he said, my son, give glory to God. Give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Don't hide it from me. And their delusion, the Pharisees' delusion, in this setting forces them to insist on their narrative. They're blind guides. And the blind guy, the formerly blind guy, just says this. Look, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. You, you figure that out. But one thing I know, I was blind. Now I see. That should have been enough to turn their hearts. But it wasn't. And they say, what did he do to you? How did he open up your eyes? Maybe the story will change. They're like a pit bull with a tennis ball with this. They will not let this go. And he says, look, I've told you, this is, this is my favorite part right here. I told you already and you won't believe me. Do you want to become his disciples too? He's evangelizing them now. <laughs> Do you want to also become his disciples? He's taunting them. He's turning the tables on them. And I am that this guy humbly and boldly is standing up. He answers them, I told you. He didn't. He didn't want to hear it. So do you want to hear it? And they, in their hatred for Jesus, revile him. They revile him and throw him out. In fact, they had already, they had already done enough, and now here's what they do. Okay, you are his disciple, but us? Now they play the Moses card. We are disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Plays the Moses card. The man answers, hmm, how amazing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. It's like he's saying to them, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And he teaches them a Sunday school lesson. If you're following along in the narrative, it's verses 31 to 33, and he says this, Look, we know God does not listen to sinners, and if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He lines it up with the word of God. In Psalm 146, verse 8, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those bowed down, loves the righteous. And Isaiah 35, speaking of when the Messiah would show up on the scene, then the eyes of, of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I, I will take you by the hand and keep you. 
I will give you as a covenant for the people. He's speaking to the Messiah, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness, like this man born blind. Now you think that would be enough to turn their hearts, but their comeback here is atrocious. Here's what they say. Now they've already denied that he's been blind. Now they taunt him with blindness as the reason uh, for, because he, he sinned. They're like, you were born in utter sin. You're going to teach us? Do you, stamped a sinner from birth, before birth, presume to teach us, you know, the, the princes of Israel? And they cast him out. They threw him out. He was no longer a part of the community. This is what happens. The self-obsessed want attention. They won't accept God's works at face value. Here is a man thrown out for doing the right thing. The first person expelled from the synagogue because of his faith in Christ. He was put on par with the heathen. He was without a country or religious fellowship. This is what does to people. It, it turns in on itself in a grotesque, monster-like way. There is this self, you see this over and over again, and you see it here, a self-centered focus. It's all about us. There are false standards applied. There is evidence demanded, but it's never enough. There is biased research done and the rejection of plain facts. And we shouldn't be surprised because the effects of Adam's sin are everywhere. You must be humbled to admit your need. God uses suffering like a speeding ticket to wake you up to his glory. And one day when Jesus establishes his kingdom, all suffering will take a permanent vacation. It will be gone. But now, your best life now, is joy in suffering, to seeing the purposes of God and praising him for it. Because the most painful thing in your life is often the thing that God wants to use to turn your eyes to him. There is this physical healing, but there is this just painful unbelief. But what we see next should brighten our eyes. We see a spiritual transformation. We also see some condemnation, but we see a spiritual transformation. Jesus transforms souls. So Jesus goes looking for this guy. He hears, we're in verse 35 now. He hears that they had cast him out, and having found him, he goes looking for the man. And he asked him one question. And here's a guy who has been off from all that came through Moses. And Jesus is about to lead him into all that came through him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Harkens him back to the Old Testament, to Daniel, and to say, I am the promised Messiah. Do you believe in me? I love his response. He's like, just tell me who he is, I'll believe. I totally will, just tell me who he is. Who is he that I might believe in him? Because he regarded the knowledge of the Son of God as a privilege beyond all hope or expectation. Wow, that I 
could believe in the one promised? Really me, the one that has been a beggar since birth and looked down upon and probably spat upon? And he says this. I love it. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Sincerely believes and worships Jesus, has true saving faith in the Messiah. Here is Jesus who reveals himself to this outcast of the synagogue, just like he had revealed himself to the outcast of the nation at Jacob's well in John 4. And just how he can reveal himself to you, who feel so condemned by your sin. In fact, if you're asking, what must I do? You're in a good place. In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and starts preaching boldly and authoritatively, and he, he brings the word of God to the people, and he, he brings a heart-piercing message. The Spirit of God pierced the hearts of the people. And at the very end of his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he gets to this, this capstone line, and he says this, Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sins. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? If that's you today and you're like, you know what? I realize I'm a sinner in law and I'm lost and I, I, need, I need to be saved. And you hear the gospel of the grace of God in Christ that Jesus died for your sins in your place as your substitute took the punishment that your sins deserved so that you would have forgiveness and abundant, and abundant life in Christ? If you're asking that question, it's similar to what we're going to be in Acts 16 next week, but just a, a quick brief look at what happened in Acts 16 where there's a Philippian jailer that asks a similar question. In Acts 16, and near the end of the chapter, the Philippian jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's seen a miraculous work of God. And the answer is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it says they spoke the word of God to him with all who were in his house and many came to faith in Christ. If that's you today, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. The one who opens blind eyes, the one who clearly is God. And it's really interesting what Jesus says to cap this narrative off. He basically says this, for judgment I came into this world. Because, by the way, the Pharisees were judged right then, starkly, clearly. He said this, I came for judgment into this world that those who do not see may see. Those who would admit their sin, those who admit their would see, but those who see may become blind. Those who are so proud that they will not admit their need for Christ. These are the works of God, salvation and condemnation. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? I'm sure they were indignant. And Jesus said, if, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. Like if you would admit that you're sinners in need of me, your sin would be forgiven. But now that you say we see, he says your sin remains, your guilt remains. Because the spiritually blind don't want 
to admit their own sinfulness and their need for a savior. They focus on their performance. They focus on others' issues to make them look good and hide their guilt and shame because of their sin. And notice the bookends of this narrative. Verse 2, who sinned? Verse 41, your sin remains. Sin is to miss the mark. It's, there's no bullseye for you on that one. You're defying God. It's like you're in a windowless room and you can't see. You're blind to the light and what's outside. Jesus, as we see here, attracts the needy and repels the self-centered. Those conscious of their sin ask for his help. and The self-satisfied become more blind to Jesus, the light of the world. We are all sinners in the hands of a sovereign God. There is so much suffering so that God's works would be displayed. We have painful reminders all around of sin's ravages on a personal front, in the family circle, the national arena, global stage. And here we see a physical healing and a testing miracle of the deity of Christ. And Jesus heals a man born blind who then outsmarts the Pharisees. you got to cheer for that. And then this painful unbelief that the rulers forbid the recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. But the spiritual transformation, the salvation of the healed man, how do we respond? How do we respond to, to hearing this, to knowing this? If you're a believer today, I have three responses for you. Number one, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ who uses suffering for his glory. Suffering can feel overwhelming. We all feel overwhelmed by suffering. I mean, who hasn't hit the speed bumps in life? Who doesn't have a few dents in the fender? Who isn't marred by sin? And, and sometimes the suffering has gotten so deep into our souls, we feel like we could never get out of it. And God's plan is seldom a straight line. It's usually a winding road that we can't figure out before we get there. You've got to curb your outrage. Some people get really angry about this. And you've got to say, you know what? God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in every affliction, with the comfort in Christ, and therefore we can comfort others with that same comfort that we have. This tells us that the unwanted thing in your life is necessary. That even your most painful suffering is what God most wants to use to set your eyes upon him. And that you wouldn't be surprised when people reject you for saying, God is using my suffering for his glory. But just remember, Jesus always runs contrary to expectation. Focus not on your suffering, but on his sovereignty. Those with faith in Christ, they look at suffering through the window of God's grace. So cling to Christ who uses suffering for his glory. And secondly, be careful about your conclusions and your communication. A common response to suffering is shame and blame anybody and everybody except ourselves, right? And sometimes you just do it to yourself. But many people get their exercise jumping to conclusions 
when they don't know the answers. And you become very injury-prone, spiritually speaking, when that happens. And you injure other people. Like, don't try to connect the dots on everything in life. Don't try to figure out the humanly unknowable. Believe Deuteronomy 29, 29 that says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. We may believe the word of God and do it. But if you're going to be careful with your conclusions and your communication, you're going to have to curb your anger. You're going to deal with conflict and unloving division. By the way, it kills churches. It cripples Christians. It dishonors Christ. It crushes fellowship. It hamstrings our witness. In fact, there are Bible verses getting twisted left and right. It's been so since God gave us his word that sinful people will take the Bible and use it wrongly. It always used to be, the biggest verse that was taken out of context is, judge not lest you be judged. Unbelievers and believers alike would misapply that verse. But the verse that's getting misapplied and twisted the most in this moment in which we live is this. Everyone thinks they know what it looks like. I love my neighbor, so I do this. I love my neighbor, so I do that. You need to do the same thing I do, and many people are pharisaically imposing their view on others, and if you don't do the thing that I say is loving neighbor, you're not loving your neighbor. It's getting twisted left and right. Don't trifle with the truth. Just acknowledge Christ's lordship in your life, receive his forgiveness, and don't have a calloused heart. So many people can't receive the forgiveness of God because their heart is so built up with calluses or barnacles. You have to be careful, Christian, with your conclusions and your communication. You can be so fixated on social issues right now that your soul is in jeopardy. I mean, when, did you, when was the last time you took the word of God humbly at face value, take it to heart, instead of all the opinions you're sharing? So in, instead of trying to get someone to get or not get a vaccine, or instead of complaining about what the Taliban is doing, or complaining about what our government isn't doing, why not do this? Why not strategize out on the plaza after the service or wherever you go next on how you as a Christian can be a blessing and help? I mean, here is an opportunity for Christ's church to take a concerted action in the face of suffering to help and bless so that others might see that there is a Savior. I mean, this doesn't mean you can't process your thoughts. It doesn't mean you can't have a conversation or, or even a debate. But it means that should not be your primary default. The best thing is to pray. The best thing is to speak God's truth more than your opinions. How many times did the Bible say go? You know, like, go and do this good thing. Just go and bless. And thirdly, keep believing and be a blessing even as others deny Christ. This former blind beggar presumably went on as a follower of Christ, surrendered to God's sovereign sufficiency. And only God knows how much he suffered further for his faith in relative obscurity. I came across this the other day. A friend of a friend wrote it. A guy named Tim Kesey. Here's what he wrote. 
It's kind of long, but it's really, it's really good. Paul, he says, wrote half the New Testament, but we only have a few pages about Paul's 30 years of breathtaking, backbreaking, nation-shaking gospel ministry, and even fewer tantalizing lines from his own pen. Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger, danger, danger. The struggles and soldiering work of kingdom work are mostly done in obscurity. In many parts of the world today, believers labor and suffer in silence. Years in prison or a refugee camp pass unnoticed by the outward world. Nothing on Google, no biographies, no blogs. And the view of most everyone around them is that these Christians are fools who have wasted their lives on a lost cause. Nothing new. From the first century and from the first martyrs who were burned to ash and became the food of wild beasts to the 21st century and Christians who suffer in silence or slog through nameless, indifferent places for the gospel, great sacrifice has often gone unnoticed. And I would just say, it does not go unnoticed by God. Pray for the suffering. Pray for those who are suffering. Help them in in some way. We have a a world that is, is ripped by headlines. The Taliban overrunning Afghanistan and the church there seeing God at work through it. The suffering they do not want to strengthen their faith and save the lost. That won't hit the news. Earthquakes crippling Haiti and the church persisting in the midst of political unrest and violence and poverty and devastation, wildfires ravaging America, and Christians worshiping in evacuation centers, blessing their communities. A friend of mine, pastor friend of mine, is doing that this morning in Northern California. COVID debates, dividing families and churches, and yet peacemakers exist. In Isaiah 42, 16, we read God saying, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake my people. God uses unwanted suffering to set your eyes on him. His works are what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost. God's holiness requires a sacrifice for the sins of man, and Jesus was that sacrifice for all who believe. As we sang earlier today, turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. That you can behold God's greatness, that that you can behold Christ's glory as you proclaim the gospel in the midst of suffering. This is how good God is. He doesn't stop the process. He gives you glimpses of his glory as you groan with creation and look forward to his ultimate glory. You can gratefully give the the eye-opening truth of the gospel even as you suffer. See, Jesus is no longer spitting to make mud, but he is saving many souls. 
and he is manifesting God's work in and through his church. And Lord God, we praise you and thank you that this is true and that you are sovereign and all-powerful and that everything for a believer is mission for Christ as we, as we travel towards a painless eternity where there will no longer be any suffering. And we praise you, Lord, for your merciful rescue of so many souls, Lord, and you're opening people and their hearts to the gospel, saving souls, sanctifying as you see fit. And we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.